0: Well, good morning again. So in case you guys didn't notice, I'm sure you did, Larry's not here. <laughs> you should be able to tell because the pulpit's too big for me. Like I, <laughs> just kidding. He's, uh, him and Hope went down to Texas to go to a conference, and so um, I would encourage you guys to pray for them and their safe travels and that they learn all that they can from this conference, and hopefully we can apply it to us. Um, and so, yeah, do that. Let's see. We'll just jump right in, huh? How about that? Let's see. In his book, Stories for the Journey, William R. White shares the story of Hans, a European seminary professor devastated by the death of his wife. Enid, Hans was so overcome with sorrow that he lost his appetite and he didn't want to leave the house. Out of concern, the seminary president, along with three other professors, paid Hans a visit. The grieving professor confessed that he was struggling with doubt. I'm no longer able to pray to God, he admitted to his colleagues. In fact, I'm not certain I believe in God anymore. After a moment of silence, the seminary president said, then we will believe for you. We will pray for you. The four men continued to meet daily for prayer, asking God to restore the gift of faith to their friend. Some months later, as the four friends gathered for prayer with Hans, Hans smiled and said, It is no longer necessary for you to pray for me. Today, I would like you to pray with me. In this story, the professor began to doubt God because of the loss of his wife. He began questioning whether or not God was real because of the pain he was experiencing. Doubt is essentially a feeling of uncertainty or a lack of conviction. It's a lack of conviction. The New Testament sense of to doubt reflects man's dividedness of attitude when confronted with a promise of God. It occurs within the context of prayer and action at times when God's word itself is what is being questioned. And for a lot of people, this type of doubt happens when they find themselves in situations that are tough, that are hard. The loss of a loved one through death or divorce, the loss of a job, and the associated financial hardship, illness, injury, and the list goes on and on. What is it about those situations that doubt is able to creep in. The typical answer is that doubt, is that people doubt God and his abilities in a lot of cases because they are experiencing fear. There are number, uh, numerous Hebrew roots that express the concept of fear. The most common of them is the root word yar, to fear. Used 437 times in various forms throughout the Old Testament. The other most common roots for fear in the biblical Hebrew are to dread, to be terrified, to tremble. Fear includes anxiety, dread, and loss of courage in the face of an unpleasant or a dangerous situation. Everybody experiences fear at times, and everybody doubts God. It is a part of our sinful nature to question God. Even the great apostles experienced doubt. The question is, how how can we overcome that doubt? How can we strengthen our faith? The very first book of the New Testament is the gospel according to Matthew. This gospel was written by Matthew, also called Levi, who was a tax collector. An interesting fact about tax collectors in the first century is that they were trained to write in shorthand for the use of writing quickly to record what people said as they said it. And so in addition to the gospel of Matthew being inspired by the Holy Spirit, in a lot of cases, what he wrote was more like a recording or written down as it was happening. Matthew is an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. In chapter 14, Matthew records a couple of really awesome events One of those events is known as the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus' disciples come to him and ask if they should send the masses of people away because they're hungry and there isn't enough food for them. But Jesus, he takes five loaves of bread and two fish from a young man and gives thanks to God for the provision, and miraculously, that small amount of food feeds the crowd and even produces more leftovers than what they had started with just after this happens everybody there is full and they come to Matthew or we come to Matthew 14 verses 22 through 36 and it says this immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away and while he had sent the multitudes away he went up on the mountain by himself to pray Now, when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Jesus had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Today, we're going to look at this section of scripture in three ways. First, I want to, I want to break down the text in order to understand it a little bit better. Second, I want to extract some um, principles that are being taught here. And then third, I want to emphasize some applications for our lives. And because there's so little time, we'll just jump right in. Matthew 14, 22 through 24. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he sent the multitudes away, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain to pray, by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. You have to first understand that the Jewish people have been waiting and praying for a new king, someone who would free them from the Romans, someone who would deliver them from the issues Israel was facing, the long-awaited descendant of King David. And now there is this Jesus who not only has the ability to preach and to teach, but also has the ability to perform miracles. And he commands authority everywhere he goes. And so it is that when Jesus sees the crowd that, he, that had just eaten the miracle bread, reacting to his miracle by expecting him to become the nation's king and not the king of glory, See, they wanted a man king, and they didn't recognize him as the holy king of kings. He decides to send them away. John 6, 15 says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Our passage says he immediately made his disciples get into the boat and go to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. The disciples may have had the very same attitude as the rest of the crowd. Notice, Jesus made them get into the boat and go to the other side before him, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Interesting fact about the Sea of Galilee is that it is a large body of fresh water, which is located below the headwaters of the Jordan River, mentioned 197 times in the Bible. It is about 209 meters below sea level, which is the lowest lake on earth. And because of its position and the surrounding mountains, this particular body of water is prone to sudden and violent storms. So finally, after clearing everybody out, Jesus goes up to a mountain to pray The crowd has dispersed. The disciples are sailing across the sea. And Jesus goes up for some alone time with God. We all know that praying is an act of communication with the Father, which Jesus did often. However, it's not clear exactly what he was talking to God about in this situation. But likely, he was praying for those people. He was praying for his disciples. While he was there praying alone, the Bible says the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So one of those sudden and violent storms that the Sea of Galilee was prone to is now in full effect and was tossing the boat in the wrong direction. The wind was contrary or opposite of what they wanted or what they were expecting. Can you imagine how the people might have felt? In general, They were all just sent away by Jesus, their king hopeful, including those that knew him best, the disciples. And now these disciples are faced with a violent storm that is tossing them around and making it hard for them to stay on course. They are scared. Jesus isn't with them. They're on their own. I would imagine they were praying. Maybe that the storm would cease, that God would save them. I read an adaptation from David Jeremiah's What Are You Afraid Of that I want to share with you. When the Andrea Gale left harbor in Massachusetts on September 20th, 1991, and headed into the North Atlantic, no one could have known that this fishing boat would never be seen again. Only a bit of debris ever turned up, and the six crew members vanished forever. And his book, The Perfect Storm, author Sebastian immortalized the fate of the Andrea Gale. A film followed, but the real star of the book and the movie was the storm itself, a terrifying, relentless oppressor born of fierce wind and mountainous waves. No wonder meteorologists called it the perfect storm. Three deadly elements came together in October of 1991, a front moving from Canada toward New England, a high-pressure system building over Canada's east coast, and the dying remnant of Hurricane Grace. Churning along the eastern seaboard of the United States, strong weather was coming from three of the four points on the compass, all of it converging on the little Andrea Gale. On their own, warm air, cold air, and moist air are hardly noticeable. But when wind patterns force them together, the result can be lethal. The last radio transmission of Billy Tyne the captain of the fishing boat, came at 6 p.m. on October 28, 1991. He reported his coordinates to the captain of his sister's ship, Hannah Bowden, saying, She's coming on, boys, and she's coming on strong. The book and movie brought the term perfect storm into common usage. But the concept is as old as humanity. People have always had to deal with the convergence of multiple rough circumstances. So much can go wrong so quickly that we shake our heads and say, when it rains, it pours. Storms in life can be scary, especially those perfect storms. But they almost, they almost always produce a common theme, and that is this, that we can't control what's outside of us. Matthew 14, 25 through 27. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. This would have been somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., the Romans divided their shifts into four watches, and this fourth watch was the graveyard shift. These men were terrified. Not only were they being battered by the storm in the middle of the night, lightly soaked from the rain, cold and tired, but now they see a figure of a man walking toward them on the water. I think it's an understatement to say that they were afraid. They thought they were seeing an apparition or a ghost. And the scriptures say they cried out for fear. But just as they did, notice Jesus spoke to them saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. This was God calming these men in the middle of their perfect storm. I know you are scared, but don't be. It is I. This statement, it is I one commentator stated although the greek words for it is i or i am can have no more force than that any christian after the resurrection and ascension would also detect echoes of i am the decisive self-disclosure of god notice exodus 3:14 and god said to moses i am who i am and he said thus you shall say to the children of israel I am has sent me to you and Isaiah 51 12 I even I am he who comforts you who are you that you should be afraid of man who will die and of the son of man who will bring who will be made like grass Jesus Christ has revealed himself as God and has provided comfort and assurance to his believers that he is with them right where he sent them Early Methodist evangelist Francis Asbury once said, We live by faith in a prayer-hearing, soul-converting, soul-sanctifying, soul-restoring, soul-comforting God. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. I read one statement that said the idea of comfort implies at least two parties. One who gives the comfort and one who receives it. It also implies a need, one that Scripture speaks of exclusively for humans. Animals cannot receive spiritual comfort. The holy angels do not need spiritual comfort. Satan and his demons are eternally beyond it. Notice Revelation twelve nine. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth. And his angels were cast out with him. Only humans, higher than animals, lower than angels, and composed of body, soul, and spirit, were created with the capacity to receive and to give comfort. And we live in a world where we need comfort. A world where, with countless storms. Notice the Apostle Peter felt the overwhelming calming of God. Matthew fourteen twenty-eight through 33 And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But then he saw that the wind was boisterous. He was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Remember, Jesus just spoke to these men, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter still had some doubt in his heart, because he asks for reassurance. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. If is used as a conditional clause. If the special condition exists, then the other thing will happen. Like, what if aliens are responsible for global warming? And this is just their way of breaking the ice. (laughs) But God, being such a patient and loving God, he gives Peter that reassurance and tells him to come. Peter obeys the Lord and comes down out of the boat and walks on the water. Now, I don't know about you all, but the idea of walking on water, it just seems impossible. But remember Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, and always acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. When Jesus gets involved, miracles happen, like walking on water. However... This miracle is somewhat short-lived. It's not clear exactly how long or how far Peter traveled on the water before he became distracted by the storm and the turbulent waters that took his eyes off of Jesus when he began to sink. Notice, and when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to Jesus. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sin, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. This is an interesting thing because in many ways, Peter has demonstrated a lot of faith in getting out of the boat. But on the other hand, his faith was not stronger than the storm. It was able to cause him so much fear that he lost sight of the bigger picture. And that is that God is in control. Joshua 1.9 says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. But Jesus isn't surprised by this or deterred from his mission of saving people. Notice after Peter cries out to be saved, the scripture says, And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? How many times does this happen in your life? God calls you to do something. Maybe it's not walking on water, but maybe it's serving or helping someone. Maybe it's being content with what you already have been blessed with. How many times have we been tasked with something difficult and then we take our eyes off of Jesus? How many times? Have we been in situations that require God's strength? But instead we choose to rely on ourselves and our own understanding instead of God. I'm not saying this to make any of us feel bad or to highlight our little faith. But I say this to make us all consider that we are not unlike Peter. Many of us are ready to jump right out of the boat. But we are easily distracted. And while we can do so much more, if this was not the case, remember when those times come to do like Peter did and to cry out to the Lord, save me, save me. And he will. Psalm 18, 16, he sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Notice when Jesus and Peter got into the boat, the wind ceased and those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, "Truly, you are the Son of God." One source stated, "The climax of the story is not the stealing of the storm, but the confession and worship of the disciples. Truly you are the Son of God." Remember, the disciples were being tossed in a storm. They were scared. They thought that they had just saw a ghost. They watched their friend jump out of a boat in the middle of a storm then they watched them get saved by Jesus they witnessed the storm cease and the final response of the disciples is to worship Jesus psalm 95:6 o come let us worship and bow down let us kneel before the lord our maker I read about a small group of Indian believers who met in a very rundown house. There was something very special about their worship. The small song leader held up her tambourine, and she hit it with her hand and with it and a new chorus had started. Over and over the words were repeated, and soon I had joined in. It was hard not to be enthusiastic if What this song said was true. Wonderful, wonderful, Jesus is to me. Counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace is he. Saving me, keeping me from all sin and shame. Wonderful is my Redeemer. Praise his name. No one had started to preach, but already I had learned so much. What a contrast between the relationship these Christians had with Jesus and the ritualistic appeasement of the gods of Hindu ceremonies. I had never heard anyone say that a Hindu god was wonderful or a counselor. Certainly no one would sing that about Shiva, about Kali, his bloodthirsty wife, or about their favorite son, Gesheh, half elephant and half human. And they called Jesus the prince of peace. The words of that simple chorus were burning themselves into my heart. Jesus would not only save me, but he would keep me from all sin and shame. What good news. These people must have found it to be true, or they wouldn't be singing it in such an enthusiastic joy. I have no doubt that the disciples on their little boat were singing out with praise as Jesus saved them. And I hope that we as Christians do the same thing in our little boats when they get Tossed around by life storms. And to help with that, let's look at three principles and some practical application. Principle one we are not in control of everything. We are not in control of everything. Proverbs 16 9, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. We are not in control. We do not dictate when and where the storms of life will come or how long they will last. I found a list of things people cannot control. FYI, this is not a complete list, just a sample. For example, how other people treat you. If people like you or dislike you. Other people's actions. Other people's feelings. Other people's beliefs other people's thoughts, who we are related to, pastors. I mean, you can't control a pastor no matter how hard you try. (laughs) The weather, natural disasters, the passing of time, when other people die, when you die, physical and mental limitations, physical needs like food and sleep, the past, that change happens, the future, the exact outcome of anything. There are a lot of things we cannot control in this life. But one thing we can control is our attitude. One thing we can control is our attitude. Second Timothy seven. for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. As Christians, we should be courageous for God. We should be courageous for God. We can use the power that he has given us for good, despite what we are going through. And we can demonstrate Christian love. We can demonstrate Christian love to a lost world despite the storms that try to toss us around. And we can use the sound mind he gave us to accomplish so much for his glory. Having a sound mind means that you have the mental capacity to understand your actions and therefore are able to choose his way over the world's way. Charles Spurgeon once said, God is not man that he should fail, nor the son of man that he should suffer defeat. Behold, he toucheth the hills and they tremble. He toucheth the mountains and they smoke. When he goes forth before his people, he maketh the mountains to skip like rams. And the little hills like lambs. What then can block up his path? We may not be in control of everything, but our God is. Principle two. Our God is a God of comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all tribulations, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Just as Jesus Christ came to the disciples as they were in trouble when they were being tossed and battered by the severe storm, Just as Jesus Christ gave Peter the reassurance that he was there with them, just as Jesus Christ saved Peter from drowning when he cried out for help, save me, Lord, Jesus can and will do the same for us. All that is required is that we take his hand when he presents it to you. God has provided all Christians with mercy and with comfort in every situation we face. And we should repay that mercy by giving comfort to others as God has given to us. There are so many practical ways that we can do this. For starters, we can pray for people. We can pray for people. Here at Shadow Mountain Church, we have the prayer chain. I want to encourage you guys to be a part of that prayer chain. And when you get an email requesting prayer for somebody, don't wait until a convenient time. Do it as soon as you can. Pray for that person as soon as you can. Acts of service are always a great way to comfort people. Acts of service. Again, here at Shadow Mountain Church, we have the meal ministry, for example, where you can sign up to take food to folks who are going through a tough time. Or you can help out with some of the service ministries like the Good Samaritans who faithfully help those who are struggling with various tasks around their homes or their houses. Words of affirmation. Let people know how much they mean to you. Give them a call, a text, or send them a card. People enjoy knowing that they are loved or appreciated, especially when they're going through a tough time. You can invite them to church. Billy Graham once said, it's a comfort to hear the words of God in times of stress. And I agree. I love listening to To old preachers from the 50s when I'm not feeling that awesome. Martin Lloyd Jones is one of my favorites. You can offer comfort to those who need it. And the reason you can is because it has been given to you. You have been comforted by God. Principle three when God calls, miracles happen. When God calls, miracles happen. When Jesus told Peter to to come to him, Peter was able to walk on water. And the reality is, is that when God calls you, the same thing can happen. Mark 9, 23, Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. But you have to have faith. You have to overcome your unbelief. Or you will sink, just like Peter did. And so how do we avoid sinking when we're walking on water? There are a lot of things that we can do to strengthen our faith, but let's keep it simple and look at four of them that are found in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Number one, we have to watch or be on guard. As Christians, we're always in danger of the world trying to corrupt our faith. We see this happening in the media. We see it in our schools. And even in churches, people are slowly being manipulated to change what they believe. And this is weakening our faith. And so you have to be on guard always. Number two, we have to stand fast. We have to to stand firm in the faith. Here, Paul is stating that we as Christians should not give up the revelation of God. We should not give up the gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed to us by God in the Holy Bible. We have to be fixed in the faith and never renounce it. We are Christians and faith in Jesus Christ is what will get us through the storms. We have to stand firm in our faith. We have to be brave and courageous. We we live in a time where it's tough to know who the men are. We have to be courageous. We have to to act like good Christians. We have to be good Christian men and women. And we have to oppose those who are not good. Those who want to divide the church. Those who, who want to lie and spread misinformation or disinformation. We have to use biblical judgment and be resolved in our faith. We have to be courageous. And four, we have to be strong. We have to be strong. We cannot give up on doing good. We have to push ourselves to help others, despite our desire to fight for our faith and stand up to those who would try to take away our freedom to worship. We have to make sure. We have to make sure that we don't become the devil in our efforts. We have to be charitable and loving. One commentator said, Christianity never appears... To be so much at an advantage as when the charity of Christians is most conspicuous. When they can bear with their mistaken brother and oppose the open enemies of their holy faith and love. When everything is done in charity, when they behave towards one another and towards all men with a spirit of meekness and goodwill. With a spirit of meekness and goodwill. We have to be strong. Principle 4 Jesus Christ is God. It's easy sometimes to forget that because we picture a man being killed centuries ago on a cross. But remember John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning does not denote a specific time, but rather timeless eternity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word in Greek is logos. One commentator wrote, the use of Lagos implies that John was endeavoring to bring out the full significance of the incarnation to the Gentile world as well as the Jewish people. Incarnation is a person who embodies in the flesh a deity. In this case, we see that the word is with God. The word is God. The word is God in the flesh. In the beginning or before time was the word. Or incarnate God. God in the flesh. Who is this? John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Who is the only begotten of the Father? John 20, 31. But these are written that you may believe. That Jesus Christ is the son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus Christ Is God in the flesh. Once those disciples who were on that boat being tossed about realized that Jesus Christ was God, the Bible says, then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So, how do we apply something like this to our lives? Psalm 100, a psalm of thanksgiving, making a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him, and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. So one, we must recognize God and accept that only because of his grace do we exist. We must submit to his authority. We must confess him and only him as the only true God. We must give him our gratitude with praise because his goodness, love, and his faithfulness to us. Remember, We are not in control. God is. And we can trust that our God will comfort us if and when needed. When God, the creator of all things, calls us to do something, we need to respond to that calling with faith. And we need to praise the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and be thankful for all that he has done to save us, because he and the Father are one. I read an article called, Trusting God When He Is Silent, by an author named Krish Kandaya. I don't know if I said that right. Let me share this with you. The author says, one of my earliest memories is of holding my mother's hands on my first day of school. I was so nervous as I entered the classroom that I wouldn't let go. The warmth of her fingers reassured me as my heart pounded in my chest. When I felt scared and alone, she was my lifeline and my security. I was reminded of that day a few years ago as she sat in a dark room, once again holding my mother's hand. The silence was deafening as I strained to hear The muted words coming from the dehydrated mouth of a woman whose body had been ravaged by cancer. This time, my mother held on to my hand, seeking reassurance from its warmth in her time of distress. The comforter had become the comforted. Those were heartbreaking days. One moment I was praying for a miraculous recovery, the next for the end to come quickly. I was also haunted by God's conspicuous absence. What I would have given during those long, languishing hours for his still, small voice of calm. Turkish theologian Morel writes, Where is God when millions of children are being persecuted in the most brutal ways? Why does he keep silent in the middle of persecution, but seeks or speaks loudly in the middle of conferences with famous speakers and worship bands? I prayed many times like Luther, bless us, Lord, even curse us, but don't remain silent. Morale's struggles eventually led him to consider Jesus' own experience. The greatest glory Jesus brought to God was not when he walked on water or prayed for long hours, but when he cried out in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane and still continued to follow God's will. He did so even though it meant isolation, darkness, and the silence of God. Thus we know that when everything around us fails, when we are destroyed and abandoned, our tears are the greatest worship song we have ever sung. Let's pray. Holy Father, God in heaven, thank you so much for your word, Lord. Thank you so much. the truth revealed we are so honored to be a part of your family we are so honored that we get to call you our father and today lord i just want to pray over all the hearts in this room today lord i would pray that we would feel the conviction to serve you when you when you lead i pray father that we would follow that we would jump out of the boat no matter what it looks like and that we would constantly focus on jesus that we would focus everything we have on Jesus and not on the craziness around us. Help us to remember to pray for our leaders. Help us to remember that we are not in control, but you are. Help us, Father, to be all that we can be for you. Help us to walk on water. In Jesus' name, amen.